And if you would, take your Bibles and turn to the book of James. We're almost to the end of James. Maybe some of you are saying, praise God, he's finally getting out of the book. Uh, but either way, we've been in it for several months. Hopefully we've learned some things. We've gleaned some things from the book of James and what God has for us through that. Um, but in James chapter 5, verses 13 through 18 is where we're going to be this morning. But to understand the verses, we must understand the whole context James is speaking to, in re- or speaking in reference of as it refers to the body of Jewish believers who had been dispersed from their homeland. And we're going through various sufferings. Um, in fact, just for as a way of reminder, let's look back in James chapter 1, verse 2. It says, Consider it great joy, my brothers, whenever you experience various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. But endurance must do its complete work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Now you remember, James verse 1 says, A slave of God of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. So they've left their homelands, as we've said before, and every few weeks we remind ourselves of this. They left everything that was normal, everything that was around them to go to a new place, a new land, a new culture, everything different. And I don't know if, uh, I don't know, I was just saying the other day, the older I get, the more, what's the word I use? Um, The less I like change. I like my comfort zone. And I realize that I'm only 42, but the older I get, the less I like people messing with my zone. And uh, I think we all get that way the older we get. And, uh, you know, I used to like the idea of certain things I'm open to change. But, man, I don't know. Last year, just like, leave me alone. I like this where it's at. But when things are all set and life is all of a sudden different than it's always been, how do we respond to that? How do we respond to that? When all of a sudden everything that you've known as norm is no longer the norm. And all of a sudden there's new things to deal with, new people to deal with, new ways of doing things. And then James comes along and says, you people that I just described, count it a great joy. Not just joy, but great joy. My brothers, whenever you experience these various trials. Then verse 5 says, Now if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives it all generously and without criticizing, and will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting. So we broke that down, and we talked about how we don't know how to deal with these things. God says, ask me, I'll show you. I'll teach you how to deal with it. I'll show you how you're to respond. But we're to ask in faith, believing that God is going to help us. Then he goes on to say, verse 9, The brother of humble circumstances should boast in his exaltation. But the one who is rich should boast in his humiliation because he will pass away like a flower of the field. These people left everything. Only what they could take with them on their being did they go to this new land with. goes on, verse 12, A man who endures trials is blessed because when he passes the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. And no one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God, for God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each one person is tempted when he is drawn away, enticed by his own evil desires. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. 
But don't be deceived, my dearly loved brothers. Every generous act and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation nor shadow of turning. So we get the idea of what's taking place. Now with that understanding that he's dealing with the dispersed people, let's go into James chapter 5. And we're going to begin in verse 13. And remember all the circumstances in between. There is both physical suffering and persecution, and there is spiritual suffering and persecution. It says verse 13, Is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. Is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church, and they should pray over him, after anointing him with olive oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick person, and the Lord will restore him to health. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The urgent request of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. I love that in the Holman Christian. It's so powerful. The urgent request of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, yet he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the land. Then he prayed again, and the sky gave rain, and the land produced its fruit. Well, let's look to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you once again that we can look at your word, and that we can apply it to our hearts and our lives. And I pray, God, that for these few moments this morning, you would teach us what you'd have for us to learn. And God, that we would apply it to our hearts and our lives. And we'll give you the praise and the glory for all you see fit to do. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There are all kinds of things that are taking place here, but basically, he gives three basic statements. First of all, he says, is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. Secondly, he says, is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. And then number three, is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church. And I want to be careful this morning because everyone has a different idea of what this scripture, this text is talking about. And for years, I've had different people come to me and say, Well, Pastor, I've got this cancer. I've got this sickness. And I, would you pray over me? Would you anoint uh, oil and have the elders come and pray? But I don't believe that's the context of what it's talking about here this morning. If that were truly the case, and let me say I'm very empathetic towards people who are going through struggles of various kinds. Um, I would never say to someone, Well, bless the Lord, I'm not going to anoint you with oil. And I'm certainly not going to pray over you because that's not what it's talking about. I would never do that to hurt anyone's feelings. But for years, I've had people come to me and say, well, Pastor, I just want, I just want you to pray over us. So we do it. And I am always more than willing to pray. And I want you to know that you're going through it. I'm praying for you. But I don't believe that's the context of what's talking about here in this passage. And I think we're going to find out in a few moments that's very clear from the context of everything that is being said here. Um, but let me just say this. If, that were, if it were as easy as having the elders of the church come and anoint your head with oil and pray over you, everyone would be doing it and everyone would be being healed. But we don't see that's the case, do we? We know that people go through various trials. They go through the sicknesses, the cancers. And very many people are sick with diseases. And sometimes God just has in His sovereignty for that person to go through it. Um, I can remember uh, wondering as a kid growing up, why my dad went through so much. And we have a lot of new families, and I haven't shared much of my testimony with a lot of the new families, but let me just give a little nutshell. My dad went through more physically than anyone else I have ever met. Now, let me say it this way. 
I know there are people in the world that have gone through more things than my dad, but I never met anybody personally that went through more things than my dad. Um, my dad had 19 back operations, or I'm sorry, 16 back operations. And uh, if you know anything about back surgeries in the late 70s and early 80s, when you had a back surgery in those days, you had a surgery, and they went through your... I mean, they, my dad had a zipper on his back the entire... from neck to, neck to the base of his uh, back. And when he went through a surgery in those days, you were in traction for three, four, five months afterwards. And uh, it was crazy. So my dad would go through a surgery, and then for the next three months, he's sitting with weight on his legs that pop up, propped up in the air. And uh, that's just how they did it. Today, you go through a back surgery, they have you walking four hours later. And going through therapy. Well, they didn't do it in those days. So 16 back operations... And when uh, my dad was in an accident that basically crushed his pancreas and became an instant diabetic. And through that accident, um, he, I mean, if there was a side effect to having diabetes, my dad got it. Um, he had it all. Um, but he had neuropathy and, and all these different things that would go through his body. But it led to a, a toe amputation, led to a foot amputation, led to a lower leg amputation, to upper leg amputation. And it just went seemingly never ended. And the doctor said that when he went to the, to the point of having his heart surgery, he said it was just from the years of stress on his body. So my dad passed away at 53 of liver, I mean, I'm sorry, of kidney failure, um, to complications with his diabetes. You know, he had probably six or seven eye surgeries. I mean, my dad went through all kinds of stuff. And I thought it was really interesting that when my dad, the night my dad passed away, a nurse came up to me and she says, Ken, this ends a 27-year relationship with your father. And he said, I never heard him complain. I couldn't have done it. I gripe at the little cut. I mean, I was walking up the stairs yesterday, and I, and I get my foot bumped against a, whatever we are carrying, and it slices my foot, and I'm like, ah! But how do you deal with suffering? How do you deal with physical? That's not all I was talking about, but how do we deal with things like that? You can't deal with them right unless the Lord is in your life. You can't. There's no way physically possible for us to deal with things correctly outside of dealing with God in our life. So he says, is any of you suffering? And we're going to talk about this moment. This suffering here is not necessarily the physical suffering that I'm describing here. But it's going to set the stage a little bit. Is anyone cheerful? You should sing praises. I love when I'm around kids. It's so funny when you walk, walk by somebody and you have little kids screaming, singing. This says they have joy. That God is in their life. I love hearing the little two and three, four year olds. And you walk by and they're just singing and they don't even know anyone's listening. And there's no fears because nobody knows that they're singing. And they just scream it out. Ellie was doing that one day. Um, I've seen a lot of these little kids doing this. Uh, Maddie. And, you know, it's just awesome. It's a sign of joy. That's okay. And he says, if any is cheerful, you should sing. Sometimes we say we've got the joy of the Lord and walk around with like, like we're eating sour grapes. Like somebody just forced prunes down your, down your mouth. I mean, yeah, they're nasty. But anyway, <laughs> but we walk around with all this heartache and struggle, and, and yet we say we've got the joy of the Lord in our life. Really? Because, man, I'm just not seeing it. He said, if you're cheerful, you should sing. And then he says, anyone among you sick, you should call for the elders of the church. But what he's talking about is we're not talking about those that are suffering physically. We're not talking about the sick of those that are going through illnesses and, and, and diseases and cancers. It's terrible. It's heinous. 
But that's not exactly what he's referring to here. I believe very clearly that the suffering that he's dealing with are those experiencing wicked treatment from others. In the original language, it has the idea of those who are receiving from others the fruit of their wickedness. It is the verbal abuse because they are believers. It is the torment because they do stand up for what is right and what is truth. And we're going to see the difference between the first thing and the third thing, those that are sick among you, is that it goes to an extreme point to where they can almost not function. They've given up. But really, the suffering, those experiencing wicked treatment from the hand of others. And so, it's an emotional abuse. James says, pray. I don't know that there's anything too many things in life that are more difficult as when you feel like you're getting beat down because you're standing up for what is right. I don't know about you in your life, but I know that the hardest ones to deal with in this area is oftentimes our own family members. I don't know about you, but my own testimony, I grew up in a family that, you know, growing up from a young age at the age of five, trusting the Lord, and then going through life, living in church. My mom's side of the family are not believers. And my dad's side of the family, uh, you know, it's half and half. But the idea of on my mom's side, they're always just like, pick, 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 prod, poke, poke. Because we didn't do the things that they did. We didn't cast judgment on them. But the opposite was not true. They're always picking and poking and prodding because we tried to do what was right. And it just wore on you. It made family functions difficult. It made the get-togethers at Thanksgiving and Christmas a little bit awkward because, oh, you're those Christians. It just is what it is. And it was hard. And that's the kind of treatment that James is talking about and referring to in this passage. It is the physical, it is, or the emotional, it is the mental, it is the picking, the poking, the prodding, because you have made a decision to do what's right. And when you stand up for what is right... The devil doesn't like to go that unchallenged. He'll challenge it. That's why he says in 1 Peter 5, 7, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walketh about seeking whom he may devour. The world doesn't like it when people stand up for what's right. What did our governor governor say just recently? If you're a conservative Christian, get out of the state. We don't want you here. Did you guys hear that? Just about a month ago? The world does not like people who make a stand for what we know is right. And that is really what he's talking about. The suffering, the physical, or the spiritual, the, the, the wickedness that comes to us by the hand of others. So he said, that person, you're to stand up, you're to do what's right, but you're to pray. In fact, in 2 Corinthians, and I'm going to be jumping around just a little bit this morning as I often do, but 2 Corinthians chapter 1, I just want to read a couple verses here. I'm not going to read a lot. But 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. It says, Praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. And He comforts us in all of our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction. And through the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Now think about this. Romans 8.28 says, All things work together for... Now, is that a conditional statement? Yes, it is, based on the second part of the verse. Trick question. I'm sorry, Mike. (laughs) To those that love God and are what? Called according to His purpose. 
So when we have the idea, when we're walking through life and we're putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, say, God, I love you enough to trust you with my life. I trust that you're not going to do anything harmful to me. I trust you that you're in control. You're a sovereign God. You can do whatever you want. I trust you with my life completely. No strings attached. You have me all. When we have that kind of a mindset towards God, says, I trust you. Things are going to work out together for good. And he says, listen, you mean even the physical, or I mean the, the emotional and the, the spiritual abuse and sometimes the persecution comes our way can work out for good? Yes. Because he says right here in 2 Corinthians 1 that the God who comforts you through all these things will allow you, after you've been comforted, to comfort others who are going through these things. It's not for naught. It's not without purpose. God says that you're going to be stronger through it, and as you get through it, you're going to be able to help someone else going through it. And I know in my life that I have different people that I've shared my faith with and have come to know Jesus Christ, and they say, man, this is difficult. People are harsh on us. Yeah, they sometimes are. Because John 8 says, they're not of our Father. So the bottom line is, it is difficult, but it's not without purpose. So he says this, in the context of what he's talking about in James chapter 5, if any of you are suffering, he should pray. The bottom line is, it's not about having a pity party. It's not about, woe is me because everyone doesn't like me. It's not, oh, well, they're picking on me because I'm a Christian. The bottom line is, he says, get through it. How do you get through it? You pray. And that's so different from the culture that we live in. Our culture, we've got to get up the phone and say, did you hear what so-and-so did to me? And we get on the phone, we get on the email, we take it to Facebook, for crying out loud. We tell the whole world how people are angry towards us. Bottom line is, guard your testimony. Take it to God who can do something about it. Right? He gives us the answer. If you're suffering, and you're going through this kind of suffering, where people are poking and prodding and picking because of your faith, pray about it. And while you're praying... Ask God to do a work in their life. It's not easy. But He gives us a solution. And then He says, secondly in James chapter 5, is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. As we said already, the bottom line is this. Has God done a work in your life? Think about that question just for a moment. Is God, has God done a work in your life? I asked a question this morning. How many would rather be here than in jail? Right. Obviously, God's doing something in our life, right? He's allowed us to have a mind and a brain and to think and to reason and have logic. And God gives us the ability every day to choose to serve Him and to follow Him and to put Him first and to do what's right. We have a lot to be thankful for. We have a lot to cheer, be cheerful about. Man, I tell you what, we, we walk around like life is just so dull and blah. There are days, I know, we all have them. There are some days I, I just want to like, I don't know, I want to like, you know, go hit the punching bag or something like for an hour. Blow some steam because people are just crazy. We all go through those days. But what defines us as believers? Is it the joy of the Lord? And let me just say this. If we've got the joy of the Lord, the joy is not defined by what we have or don't have. Right? You guys get that? It's not whether or not, and I know I use the joking, proverbial joke constantly in my ministry, it's not whether or not you have a new truck or an old one. It's not whether or not you have a new house or an old one. It's not whether you have a fat checking account or a skinny one. Circumstances don't define our joy. People don't define our joy. 
Right? God gives us that. And that's internal. So are you cheerful? Sing about it. I know, Gina, don't laugh. I'm down in the basement making Jake's bedroom. Yeah, they, they horrendously pick on me. I have my headphones in and I'm going 900 miles an hour at 70,000 decibels. Screaming, singing. Here's the only problem. It's two in the morning. And they're like banging on the floor upstairs and in the other room because I'm downstairs working, you know. I don't care. We have joy. Sing about it. I know I drive my family insane. Trust me, I do. But that's joy. And it's not defined by anything or anyone but God. Man cannot steal your joy. He might rob you of your happiness. And that's a prayer issue you need to take up with God. But man cannot destroy our joy. There's a lot of verses there. I won't take all the time to go into all of them because I want to get on to the third point. The third point here, he says in James chapter 5, verse 13 is this. I'm sorry, verse 14. Is any among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church and they should pray over him after anointing him with olive oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick person and the Lord will restore him to health. Now, here's where I said, the sick here is not necessarily a physical illness. It's not a cancer. It's not a disease. I don't believe the context does that. Now, also in Scripture, let me just say this, to be fair in this argument, making this case. Eighteen times in Scripture, this word that is used here, anesthetos, is, is translated physical sickness. Fourteen times in Scripture, it is translated as a weakness. As a weakness. Throughout uh, the various translations, it is translated weakness. And in the context of everything that is happening, I really believe that it should be translated as weakness, not physical sickness or illness or disease or cancer or anything like that. And let me just share a few scriptures so that you understand where I'm coming from. Same Greek word in the root used here, used in other various passages. So just a couple of them. Uh, Acts chapter 20. So if you would turn there just for a few moments, let me give you a few examples of the same root word. And so you understand the context in which I'm saying this. It kind of goes against what we've been maybe have been taught in our lives as kids or as young adults growing up in church. But Acts chapter 20, verse 35. He says this. It says, In every way I've shown you that my laboring like this, it is necessary to help the weak. And to keep in mind the words of the Lord Jesus, for he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. That word weak is the exact same word for sickness in James. Same word. Also in Romans chapter 4. There's one book over to the right. Romans chapter 4 and verse 19 says this. If I can find my verse in here in the middle of it all. 19. Since he considered his own body to be already dead since he was about 100 years old, he also considered the deadness of Sarazuma without weakening in the faith. The same word, weak, is described as sickness. Um, Romans chapter 14, weak in faith. Uh, over just a few chapters, 
Romans chapter 14 and verses 1 and 2. He says, Accept anyone who is weak in faith, but don't argue about doubtful issues. One person believes he may eat anything, but one who is weak eats only vegetables. It's the same word. So the context is a spiritual weakness that is being talked about in James. And I believe that fully in the context here. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 11 and 12. 2 Corinthians 11, verses 21 and 29. Uh, 2 Corinthians 13, 3 and 4. All give the idea and are translated the word weak rather than sickness. Same root word. So what he's saying here, there are those who are going to be sick. So what's the context here that we're talking about? There are people sometimes who get beat down. We talked about how they're suffering. They're prodding. There is poking. There is making, make, being made, uh, those being made fun of for their faith or for staying up for what's right. But they're praying about it and they're getting through it fine. The second part of this, it goes a little bit deeper, a little bit further. They're to the point where they're just, oh, I give up. I can't keep doing this. I'm frustrated. Nobody will give me, let me catch a break. I can't catch my breath and, and my faith. And I'm just, I've given up. And I'm weak. I don't want to fight it anymore. I don't want to stand up anymore. I'm just weak. And that person is just all but done because of what they've gone through. And I think one of the best examples of this is 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, I think is a great example of this. I'm almost there. He says, So I take pleasure in weakness, insults, catastrophes, persecutions, and pressures because of Christ. For when I am weak, that's the same word, then I'm strong. Man, Paul, if he hadn't gone through it all, I don't know who has. I don't know who did. Paul went through it all. And he says, but when I'm weak, that's when I'm strong because it's that Christ goes to work for me. It's God's power who comes alive in me. So it's not necessarily referring to physical sickness here. It's referring more so to the spiritual weakness. They've been through it all. They're tired. They're frustrated. They're almost ready to give up. But the bottom line is they keep going. But he tells us what to do in those circumstances. They're to call the elders of the church. And they are to be the ones that come in and say, we're going to pray with you. We're going to give you our strength and we're going to come beside you. Verse 26 of Philippians 2 just says this, Since he has been longing for all of you, and was distressed because you heard that he was sick. Indeed, he was so sick but that, ne- that he nearly died. However, God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but also on me, so that I would not have one grief on top of another. So he says, For this reason I am very eager to send him to you, so that you may rejoice when you see him again, and I may be less anxious. Therefore, welcome him in the Lord with all joy, and hold me like you. Hold men like him in honor because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up what was lacking in the ministry there. Physically weak, worn down because of their ministry. But you see, Second Corinthians is a special significance as it refers to weakness caused by suffering. So what should these quote-unquote sick people do? Well, they're to call on the elders of the church. 
And I think that's appropriate. When you're going through a trial, when you're going through a time of where you've been poked and prodded and you're just ready to give up, the easy thing to do is to what? Throw in the towel. The easy thing to do is, oh, well, this ain't working. I've tried this Christian thing. The easy thing to do is to say, well, I give up because it's just too hard. He says, don't do that. You need to find someone who is stronger than you. You need to find those who will come beside you, who will pray for you, who will give you the strength that you need, through God, of course, to get you stronger again. And that's what he's talking about. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, let me just quickly read the verse there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, in verse 14, it says this, And we exhort you, brothers, warn those who are irresponsible, comfort, there's the word, comfort the discouraged, help, there's the word again, the weak. Be patient with everyone. There's the idea. We're going to come beside those who are weak. We're going to encourage those who are going through it. So we don't want them to give up. We don't want them to stop in their faith. Acts chapter 6. And verse 4 says, actually verse 3 says, Therefore, brothers, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and wisdom, whom, can, whom we can appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the preaching of the ministry. We're going to pray. We're going to pray with these men. We're going to pray for the church. We're going to pray for those who struggle. We're going to pray for those who need it. And that was, that's what the leadership is there for. To pray and to preach the Word. Guys, you're going to find in your lives there are going to be those around you who will not understand. I know in our family to this day, there are those that don't understand. Oh, why is Kenny a preacher? Why does he do that? Why did he go all the way out there? Doesn't he know that he has no family out in New York? <laughs> yeah, no one knows that more than me. Um, New York's like not on the way to like anything, um, unless you're from here. You know, nobody from Minnesota says, hey, I'll swing through New York as I'm going to, you know, New York's not in the way of anything. Why is he out there in New York? Because this is what God has ordered. You know, every family has those who don't understand. And the easiest thing is just to say, well, I give up. (laughs) No, you don't give up. You pray. And you call on those around you who are stronger to help you through it. Because they are going to pick. They're going to prod. They're going to poke. And it gets wearing. But you don't give up. And he says, after they've anointed them with oil... The bottom line is this. When that person comes who has been beat down and weak and strong, we put the oil on them and we pray over them. That's what he's referring to. They're going to receive the strength that they need to get up and do what they need to do through my power. Um, it was kind of interesting. When I went to India 11, India 11 years ago, um, it was kind of interesting. People, the culture, I don't fully understand everything about what I'm about to say, but it was kind of interesting. You had these people who had various interesting diseases and you're from america right and as an american preacher you must have special powers that our own indians don't have no uh none but they would come up to you with their own bottle of oil and they would ask you to put it on their head and pray over them and i remember very clearly thinking very nah i don't feel comfortable with this at all 
And I would sit there with him, and I would sit there, and, and through the interpreter, I would say this. I am more than willing to pray for you. I am more than willing to go to God, to his throne room for you. But I want you to know something. This oil and my prayer will not bring what you want. It won't. It can't. Because I'm not God. But there's somehow this link between you're from America, you're a pastor, you're a preacher, put the oil on us and pray and then we can get what we want. No. The process is this. I'm beat. I'm weak. I'm sick, so to speak, in my faith. And I have succumbed to the pressure of wanting to give up. And that is sin. Because when we're giving in to the pressures around us, where is our focus? And where is it not? And that is sin, right? That is sin. So there is forgiveness needed. So he says, so if they have sinned, their sin will be forgiven because they have come to repent. They have come in an attitude of repentance, saying, I have given up. I have not had a right attitude. I have not, I have not had faith in God. I have succumbed to the people around me and the pressures, and I have given up. And he says, that is the sin that is referring to that will be forgiven. Not the sin that, quote-unquote, caused the sickness that we have misconstrued. A lot of misteaching on this passage, I believe. But the concept is simple. They realize that they can't do it themselves. And they've given in. And they've not trusted God. And they're coming to the leadership of the church saying, would you pray? And in that context, the weakness will turn into strength. In that context, the sickness will be healed. Now, is God a God of healing? Yes or no? Of course He is. Is God a God who loves to bring miraculous things to people who need it? Yes, He is. But don't misconstrue the passage, though. The passage in this context is not about that. So what will happen to these people? According to the passage, restoration or healing will come. Forgiveness is granted. Now, what's the importance of it? Well, you've heard me say this many times over the years, and we're almost through. You've heard me say this numerous times. Sin is an issue. And sin hinders God from working, does it not? We've seen in Matthew 13 how lack of faith works. Says God says... Or, or Jesus said, I did not do many mighty works here because of what? Unbelief. So yes, when I am not placing my faith and my focus on Jesus Christ, that is sin. And God says, in those circumstances, when you are not trusting me, I'm not going to work. I, I'm not going to let you down because you don't have trust and faith in me that I can do it anyway. Bottom line is, he said, those hinder. But you've heard me say many times, when it comes to the sin in our lives, God says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Psalm 66, 18. And that's just as clear as it can be. That, that verse needs no interpretation. It's very plain English. If I regard, that means to hold in, to know it's there, but to choose not to deal with it, God says, I'm not even going to listen to your prayer. Why, why, God says, why should I listen to you and answer your prayer if you know you have sin and you choose not to deal with it? Sin separates. Does it not? According to Psalm 66, 18. 
So the sin has to be dealt with for God to work. So the person who has been beat down, who has given in to the poking, the prodding, to the point where he's ready to give up and throw in the towel, that person has sinned. And they've come to deal with it. Now God's going to work. How about Proverbs chapter 15? Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 8 says this, The sacrifice of the wicked is detestable to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. He delights in a person who wants to be upright before Him. And He works in those, six, in those circumstances. And in Proverbs 28, 9, with this we'll close, in Proverbs chapter 28, and verse 9, He says, Anyone who turns his ear away from hearing the law, even his prayer is detestable. God says, You want to have fellowship, you want to have answered prayer, you want my blessing. Guys, we are close. Guys, stay close. <coughs> Back to our text here in James 5. He says, verse 14, Is any among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church, and they should pray over him after anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick person. And the Lord will restore him to health. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. I don't know what people go through on a given day. I don't know your family dynamics. I don't know who it is in your family or your neighbors or your friends who poke fun at you because you're a believer. Who make you feel uneasy because of what you stand for. All that's irrelevant to the fact that when you're going through it, and it's very real, and you're ready to give up, don't. Don't. In those cases, you come to the church, you come to the leadership, and you say, I need prayer. I need prayer. And that person should come to you and pray with you. It's something that's missing in a lot of churches today. And I'm sorry to say it, I think a lot of churches have more judgmental circumstances going on than feelings of love and support and encouragement. And I see why a lot of people don't want to come to the church, because when the church hears what you've done, well, the rest is history, so they say. The judgmental circles fly. But the bottom line is, what's truth? And the truth is that we should not go through it alone according to God's Word. We come together, we pray for one another, let healing and restoration come back, come forth. And he says, verse 16, Therefore confess your sins to one another, and pray for one another, so you may be healed. There is a certain vulnerability in those circumstances. There's a certain amount of like, man, if I open my mouth and I say how I'm really feeling, how, am I, how are they going to respond? Well, pray about it. Because that's the first part, Right? First part of James 5.13. If you're suffering, pray. Don't give up, pray. But if it gets beyond what you can handle and you're starting to give up, you go to others and you bring them in and say, pray with me too. But he goes on here. I love this. The urgent request of a righteous person is what? Powerful in its effect. It's powerful. We forget how powerful prayer is. We forget that it's very real. 
that we're not like any other religion, so to speak. We're not about any other denomination. Every religion has their source, or their foundation, or in source in a person. John Wesley, Martin Luther, Joseph Smith. How does that compare to Jesus Christ? All those guys are dead and gone. Jesus is still alive. There's power in that name. So he says the righteous prayer, or the prayer of a righteous man, is powerful in its effect. Why? Because we're not praying to a dead man. We're praying to someone who's alive, who's well aware of everything that we're going through. And then he goes on. Gives an example of it. We won't take a lot of time here. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Yet he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And for a year, three years and six months, it did not rain on the land. Then he prayed again, and the sky gave rain, and the land produced its fruit. Can you imagine being the person who prayed that prayer? So it's your fault we haven't had no rain. That's the guy I want to be. No. I want to be the guy on the second part. And he prayed that it rained. Why? Because the prayer of a righteous man is awesome and powerful in its effect. I believe that God is a God who wants to answer prayers. I believe God is a God who wants to be there for us. But we're not without responsibility either. We don't go through this life alone. We go through it with God's help. Amen? The last part of the verse. Then he prayed again, and the sky gave rain, and the land produced its fruit. The blessing comes after the hard stuff. You ever thought about that? Blessing comes after the hard stuff. When we're going through it, it's kind of hard sometimes to see the light at the end of the tunnel. But when it's over, the blessings come. You can't usually have the blessings without going through some difficult stuff. It just works that way. God says when Paul, then Saul, was going to come and use, I'm going to show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Paul had to go through some suffering before he got to the good stuff. And then he was able to say at the end, for me to live is Christ, but to die is what? Gain. He got to the good stuff after the suffering. I want to get to the good stuff. What we have to experience, and we've said this in other parts of James, is that this is temporary. All this that we go through is temporary. God's word says our citizenship is where? In heaven. We're pilgrims, we're strangers, we're aliens just passing through. God's word says this is just temporary junk till we get to the good stuff. I can't wait. It's going to be awesome. I don't know where you're at. But the gist of this this morning is I don't know what kind of suffering you're going through, if at all. I don't know what kind of weakness you may be experiencing because of those around you poking and prodding and picking. and I don't know if you get to the point of giving up. But I'll say this. Verse 2, is, or the second part of that verse is very real. If, you got, if God's done anything in your life, if you got, you know, sing praises. But if you're going through to the point you can't sing praises, you need to get with someone and pray with us. Pray together. Take it to the Lord. And let God work as only He can. Let's pray.